0: You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, Current Issues, sharing a lesson entitled, The American Civil War. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now, here's today's teaching. The deadliest war in U.S. history, was the Civil War of 1861 to 1865. More than 600,000 would die as a result of this conflict. Of course, many countries around the world have had their own civil wars. Perhaps most famously, the English Civil War of the 1600s. My grandparents were all born within a few decades of the end of the Civil War in 1865, and all of them had stories from their relatives, sometimes even their grandparents and uncles, of the horrible things that went on in this country at that time. One of my relations wrote a book about the war, which was called Father War Gray, If you're not from the United States, gray was the color normally worn by the Confederate troops in the South, whereas the Union troops in the North wore blue. But think of it, the incongruity of brothers killing brothers. And I'm not talking about Americans killing Americans. I want you to think for a moment what this would mean for Christians, for members of churches trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Nearly all denominations divided along north-south lines. The north supporting the federal government and the south supporting states' rights, particularly the right to have slaves. Did you know that nearly every denomination urged its members to kill the soldiers on the other side? The restoration movement, of which the Christian churches, Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ are part, was exceptional in not dividing. Oh, there was still a negative impact. But nearly all of the major leaders were pacifist, And that made them an exception in not dividing. When I use the word incongruity, I really do mean that. How does participation in a battle where you might be killing your brother in Christ square with the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace? A few hundred years earlier, Martin Luther had reasoned that, of course, you shouldn't kill your brother in Christ, but if the enemy's not a Christian, then it's okay. And if you're not sure whether he's a Christian, it's okay to kill him, but if you find out that he is a brother, then you mustn't do it. Of course, I can't help but wonder if this isn't backwards. The one who's ready to meet his Lord, surely, is the one who is a Christian. Not the other one. He's the one who really mustn't die. The Apostle Paul did not even allow us to sue a brother. We couldn't take a fellow Christian to court, 1 Corinthians 6. So I guess my question is, if we're not allowed to take him to court, why would we be allowed to kill him? If we cannot hate our enemies, Matthew 5 Are we really permitted to hate our brothers in Christ? I'd like to read a section from Romans chapter 12. Here the Apostle Paul says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone, evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the size of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12:14 to 21. Well, I'd like you to take yourself back a century and a half. And just imagine that you lived in the United States at the time where the states were preparing for what appeared to be the inevitable conflict, the American Civil War. One man who lived through the war, and he's actually one of the most famous Americans, is Mark Twain. And he was born in 1835. So he was in his uh, 20s. I suppose he turned 30 at the, at the last year of the war. And Twain is appreciated by people the world over for his uh, wit, which is sometimes quite uh, uh, biting, and uh, just for the way he would tell the truth. I'd like to read to you something he wrote which his publishers would not publish in his lifetime. It's called the War Prayer. And you can find this in many places in the public domain. It is an incisive rebuke of militant Christianity. This wasn't published until several years after the death of Mark Twain. I'd like to read this. It was a time of great and exalting excitement. The country was up in arms. The war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating. The bands playing. The toy pistols popping. The bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand, and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms, the proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion. As they swung by. Nightly, the packed mass meetings listened, panting to patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts, and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches, the pastors preached devotion to flag and country and invoked the God of battles beseeching his aid in our good cause, and outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake, they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day, the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams, visions of a stern advance the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then, home from the war, bronzed heroes, welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy, and envied by the neighbors and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor. There to win for the flag, or failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts and poured out that tremendous invocation god the all terrible thou who ordainest thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword and then came then came the long prayer none could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language The burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work. Bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril. Bear them in his mighty hand. Make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset. Help them to crush the foe Grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side and stood there waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal, Bless our arms. Grant us the victory, O Lord our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The word smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, And will grant it, if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import. That is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant in yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this. Keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware, lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it, I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed silently, and ignorantly, and unthinkingly. God grant that it was so. You heard these words. Grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory. Must follow it. Cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening Spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. With them, in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with little children, to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land, in rags and hunger and thirst. Sports of the sun, flames of summer, and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travel, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave, and denied it. For our sakes, who adore Thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of Him who is the source of love and who is the ever-faithful refuge And friend, of all that are sore beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. After a pause, he continued, ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. It was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said. The war prayer of Mark Twain. They thought that the heavenly messenger was out of his mind, that there was no sense in what he said. Does it make sense to you? Is there not An unspoken prayer that accompanies the uttered prayer? I've visited a number of countries recovering from civil wars. It's ugly. Every bit as ugly as is portrayed in the war prayer. Perhaps worse, given the sophistication of modern technology. With these words in our mind, I'd like us to return to the thought, it's the 1860s. The nation's about to divide, about to break out into warfare, brother against brother. You have brothers in Christ across a state line who are now the enemy, and you're told In fact, encouraged by the ministers of your church that God is on your side and that you should smite the foe. But what do you do when the foe is your brother in Christ? Does this make sense? Is this not incongruous? Is there not something we should think about here? We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on current issues. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.